Hello and welcome to the Room of Lives. I am your host, Neil. In this second part of my conversation with Carol and Jordan, I asked them about the trajectories of their lives, their childhood and life experiences, and the path that led them to their practice of psychedelics-mediated therapy. Jordan tells us about his traumatic religious upbringing, where he felt that something was wrong with him and his body, and he would surely end in hell. Then he shares the personal, spiritual, and psychedelic experiences that he had, culminating in an ayahuasca ceremony that changed many things for him. Carol was a highly sensitive, intuitive, and daydreaming child in a fractured family. She would occasionally have visions of the future. As an early teen, she had a vision of a hurricane that would strike the south of Galveston, Texas, at a place that was different from where it was predicted to land. She tried to call the news, but ended up being exorcised by a prayer group instead for her prophetic powers. We then talk about how her psychedelic experiences completely rewired her relationship to her pain from arthritis and withdrawal from opiate medication. If you enjoy visiting the Room of Lives, consider donating Ether, Dai, or other Ethereum-based coins to abhranil.eth. That's A-B-H-R-A-N-I-L dot E-T-H. about a kind of like a brief life history okay. and also the journey into what you're doing currently and you can start as far back as you want. So in each podcast episode, regardless of what the main things are that the guest wants to talk about, in the beginning I usually just kind of ask them about a little like bio because it helps me understand the person. And anyone listening later also gets a bit more of like a personal. So I'll, I'll tell you how this whole podcast thing started. I initially, I just thought I'm going to interview young scientists in grad school because most, uh, most uh, of our uh, public hearing about science is from well-established scientists. In fact, a lot of those people are retired. Like Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't do science anymore. Mm-hmm. Bill Nye, the science guy, isn't really an active He's not a scientist. Oh yeah. He's not a scientist. He's an engineer. And these people like, okay, so they're doing a lot of good, but they speak a lot of the time from a position of authority. And like, I've already been there, done that, etc. So it can be very um, kind of awe-inspiring sometimes to hear about them, but it's definitely something very hard to relate to. Like, yeah. I'm not them. I'm not that person. Scientists are these people where lab coats do all this crazy stuff. And we are humans. So I started this podcast with the idea of interviewing young scientists who have a lot of doubts, a lot of confusion, a lot of other things. Like they're, they're not certain about, yeah, mm-hmm. am I doing it right? There are all of these real life struggles that I don't know if I'll be able to do science. I don't know if I'm good enough. There are people around me that are so good and etc. 
So you start to see them as humans. And then I wanted to ask you, what were you like as a child? Why are you doing what you're doing? Are you, what, what makes you feel curious? What are other things in life that excite you? And so you start getting a very human lens mm-hmm. to something that is normally considered very cold and clinical. So regardless of what the guest wants to talk about, usually I start my podcast with telling me about yourself a little bit, like growing up and stuff like that. So that is the that is the perspective with which I'm like kind of asking you guys now a little bit about your life histories. I want to check out my magic legs. Okay. So pause for that. It's kind of noisy. Yeah. But I figured you would want to go first. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to be comfortable on the sofa with these things on. No, it's hard to be comfortable with these things on. Okay. So, my name is Jordan Stanford. I am 36. The person that I was, even like four or five years ago, never would have imagined that I'd be here now. And certainly, um, from a very young age, I was in a lot of, I was in a very restrictive environment, very, very, very wounding, traumatizing, re-traumatizing kind of environment. Um, Some of that involved just the coldness of adults around me or them not having their own needs met and so they try to get their needs met through me some of it was uh pretty hardcore fundamentalist christianity sort of a, kind of with a pentecostal side to it with speaking in tongues and believing in miraculous things but also believing in a very um kind of bipolar borderline yahweh punisher mm-hmm. figure our god and then there's this kind of confusing dude named jesus who's like his son and he gets killed and it's all like strange like it's you're told you're given unconditional love but if you do these certain things you're going to end up in hell does god still love you if you're in hell does it matter because you'll be eternity so i grew up believing in hell and that i would probably end up there so constant fear and dread in my life and um took me a long time to even began to organize myself, even began to know what I wanted and to get in touch with my heart. So I only started to come out of that fundamentalist Christianity around age 20, 21. I have a question. Hmm. So that belief that you would end up in hell, I'm curious why like what you were doing that was so bad and then how did that fear control your behavior i think that i got implicit sometimes explicit messages that there was something fundamentally wrong with me and wrong with my body um so consequently i would feel like i'm keeping a lid on a lot of things including my sexuality Mm -hmm. um you you read the bible and you hear these sermons and you you get the feeling that god is you god is this perfect thing and it's a 
it seems so impossible to measure up to that. And he's very reminiscent of your parental figures and my school principal. So um, there was a lot of reinforcement of feelings of, of badness. And I think deep down I knew that Christianity was a, very much a dry watering hole for me. And it took me a while to actually commit to it. I committed to it when I was 11, prayed the prayer and all that. And that was a way, that was like a form of, of suicide in a sense, where I'm letting, I'm killing and suppressing parts of myself too. And therefore creating a hell inside myself that I, that part of me has been always existing in. How old were people around you committing? I mean, some, I mean, some people commit when they're five, six. It's very much, it's a creepy sort of grooming process that's done with kids often in, in many religions, I think. So what was your second question? How did that control your behavior, this belief that you would go to hell? It's, and I mean, thinking about God as this omniscient thing, like your parents and the principal only see you sometimes, but God is like seeing you all the time. It's all uh, fear. And there were, I did have genuine spiritual experiences in church and by myself where I felt incredible love from what I took to be God, but now I could say God, but also maybe my higher self, like incredible spiritual experiences occasionally. But then for the most part, it was fairly depressive, like efforts. And I could never pray enough. I could feel like I could just never quite get it. Never read my Bible enough. So, um, very sophisticated self-defense structure and person and personality defenses arise in that and it's been years of dismantling reappropriating those areas of myself and of course medicines have helped enormously with that but yeah, it took me a good 20-ish years to start to really question it and real and see where the beliefs were actually causing me misery i'm curious about the um those heightened spiritual moments what brought those sometimes i would just be alone and praying <clears throat> and something broke through uh i i had one experience um, a couple years ago with dmt and psilocybin mushrooms and i my experience was that when i took that hit of dmt i time traveled back to my teenage self and gave myself love mm. and sent love and compassion into that present experience of that past person and i i periodically growing up i had experiences of it would just come on me and overwhelm me sometimes during <laughs> church you know the sometimes you have these services where there's a really charismatic pastor and he puts hands on you and you you just fall down and you feel this bliss i mean I don't, I can't fully explain that stuff, but those experiences actually help keep me alive and keep me from, from, I think, ending my life because I realized that there was something, someone with all this love. So, um, does that enter? Yeah. Do you suspect that those instances of love that you experienced as a child was really your like current self going back in time 
I wonder. Both of the time. I wonder if I was completing a loop there. Mm-hmm. I've had, I've had some strange experiences. Like one, um, this was I was probably like thirty, but I woke up into a hypnopompic state uh, in the early morning. What state? Hypnopompic. It's like where your mind is awake and your body is asleep as you're coming out of sleep. And I, this figure walked into my room. I could feel, it felt like a male. And he like zapped me with this incredibly powerful electricity. It was one of the most intense experiences I've ever had. And it happened once more too, but it felt like a, looking back, I wonder, is that myself? Like a disembodied aspect of myself coming in and trying to help me? Um, yeah, I've and I've I've thought about that. Like, can I, can we time travel on a psychic level? And I know that sounds absolutely insane, but when you've been there, um, it feels quite real. And even if it's not real, the experience most certainly is healing. Yeah, it has the same effect as if it were real. Yeah, and it, I want to honor my past self and all of his struggles. So yeah, sometimes I. I pay him a visit. And so what happened afterwards? How did you slowly come? I spent a lot of time in school, uh, not knowing what I wanted to study, but moving through various majors and just using school. Rattle off some of the majors. Let's see, I first, I majored in, first in marketing, then uh, criminal justice for like a semester, and then uh, geographical information systems at Texas State for a semester or two, and then uh, finally settled on photography because that was something that I actually loved and was helping me heal and find myself. So I realized this therapeutic value of expressing myself and graduated the degree, didn't really use it, ended up driving as a courier for a couple of years. Um, Playing a lot of video games. Yeah, I played, I got, ever since I was a teenager, pretty heavy into video games. Um, quite a quite a, an addiction in a way to, um, kind of like what, and the people use ketamine for sometimes, go somewhere else and not feel and have to have a feeling of accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and then I eventually I realized, well, I enjoy, I love psychology. I love, I love Carl Jung's ideas and all the, all the depth psychology stuff. So that I finally, after I, I was hating my job so much and feeling so uncomfortable with, it, I was like, well, why don't I just go for a master's in counseling? Still not knowing where it would fully lead me. I thought it would just be some, intellectually based talk therapist I was still very much in my head and then end of 2015 had therapy oh yeah and I did I started yes I started seeing a union analyst for several years and that was super helpful while you were career yeah it was super helpful seeing a union analyst and getting in touch with my inner world and being able to talk about my dreams and actually help prepare me for doing work with medicines because reading if you're gonna take psychedelics you gotta get involved with Carl Jung somehow and read some of his ideas because they really prepare you for the enormity the 
uh, the depth of the unconscious, which is a lot of what you encounter in, in psychedelic journeys. So I can see sort of a, a preparation that I was going through unconsciously to do some of the work that I would do. And then I went through school and never really knowing through my master's program, never really knowing like, where do I want to take this? And then a year before I graduated, I was invited semi-randomly, but it's not random, but to an ayahuasca ceremony up in Temple. And I'd been very afraid of drugs. I was so afraid of changing my brain or like doing something that I couldn't dial back. I was really suspicious of it all. So were you like straight edge and sober, like didn't drink? Pretty much. I drank some and I didn't, I mean, I tried puffing on some marijuana one time and just (laughs) didn't really ever feel it. Um, I was afraid and I didn't know I, I needed brain changes. I needed some structural changes in here. So I went to this ayahuasca ceremony and it was so, uh, it was so far beyond what I expected. It was this heart opening experience feelings of compassion for myself that I never feelings of connecting to my memories. Um, something I've always had trouble with that were, I'd never experienced anything like that. And a feeling of a presence there inside me, helping me and feeling compassion for me. Totally, not totally novel. I'd kind of had that with some of the God experiences, but this was feminine and very sophisticated information coming through. And it felt like it set me, it was not only helping me heal, but setting me up for my work and these incredible messages coming through, some of which I haven't shared much with people. Uh, they just set me up to to approach medicine work with some sort of respect and to go into my psyche with love and with some sort of structure around it and um, creating set and setting. So from there, after ayahuasca, it was kind of balls to the wall and with trying to heal myself and it can get it can get a little crazy and you can, I brought up material sometimes. It was just, there wasn't the structure to deal with. There wasn't the community or mentors or therapists to help me deal with it. Or I couldn't, there maybe were people near me, but I didn't find them for a while. So some of it got pretty hairy and scary, but I always, always made a point to include my body um, as part of the process and stay engaged with exercise and eventually taking up yoga. So it's totally like that first ayahuasca experience upended everything. I knew that I couldn't do therapy the way I thought I was going to do it because I experienced years worth of healing. And you always hear this from people. I experienced years worth of healing in a few hours and it just, it set me on this path. It wasn't even a high dose of ayahuasca. I took two that night and purged a little bit on the second, but it felt, if, if I could compare it to something, it kind of felt like MDMA in that sense of defense is lowered and the love comes in. And I thought, how can I go back to doing regular, how can I go out and just be a regular talk therapist and throw my shingle on? Mm-hmm. I had to, I had to, I had the feeling I had to create something else. I had no idea what it was. I'm still learning that. But it's not that process of working with people and helping them heal is not 
at all indistinct from my own process of healing. And I'm not putting myself up on a pedestal as someone who's figured a bunch of stuff out or I have these certain answers about a bunch of things. It's um, always in process and always learning and unlearning. Yeah, that's cool. And what about you? I need a minute. I'm sorry about that. I need some more. That was a lot. What's the question? About your life history. <laughs> um, I was born to very young parents who didn't, who weren't ready to be parents. Um, my mom just turned, she was 19 when she got pregnant with me. Um, I was conceived right around the honeymoon. I was born four days shy of their nine month anniversary. Um, my dad was 21 when I was born. My mom was 20. Um, they, I mean, in hindsight, they did the best that they could with the tools they had available, but um, I am what is clinically called a highly sensitive person. Um, I feel a lot. I pick up on people's energies and feelings and subtle nuances and facial expressions, um, slight changes in voice, light, sound, can be really intense. So, um, It is said that I cried a lot when I was an infant, and I think it's because my parents, well, they both smoked, so that was probably annoying to me, but um, I think they just didn't know how to be parents, and being sensitive, it was hard to be with two people who didn't know how to be parents. Um, they divorced when I was four. My mom remarried multiple times. Uh, my dad had multiple girlfriends. Um, and he would disappear sometimes for a year or more at a time. And I wouldn't hear from him, know where he was. Um, there were times where it was a planned visit. So he was supposed to pick me up at school on a Friday. I had my backpack at school. School would be calling my mom at 5.30 because no one had come to pick me up. Um, you know, just shit. 
from, you know, the adults around me not really able to show up for themselves, so how could they show up for me? Um, and my mom would tend to date men who were pretty emotionally distant, unavailable, um, mean even in the way that they would relate to me and punish me. Um, so I had, and I was an only child, so I spent a lot of time by myself. Um, my parents worked and I had a key. I was a latchkey kid. So starting in second or third grade, I would come home at the end of the day by myself. Um, and I've always been like a kind of daydreamy, like I would spend a lot of time um, just sitting outside playing with bugs um, or going on long walks in the woods, um, a lot of solo things. I mean, I had friends, but I didn't, it was hard for me to have relationships with people my age because I was around adults all the time. Um, and I had a lot of anxiety as a kid. Uh, one big thing that happened when I was a toddler before my parents divorced, and this probably precipitated, my dad was also an alcoholic and started drinking really heavily after this happened. Um, there was a big hurricane. We were living in Houston. Me and my parents were born in a tiny, tiny town where most of their families came from. And when I was about six months old, my dad got a job in Houston. And um, by this point, his father and his uncle lived in Houston. So we had family there. So they moved us, they moved to Houston. And um, I lived on a street with my uncle and my aunt and my cousins, and that was a really beautiful time in my life. Um, I have really fond memories of that. And then the hurricane came and destroyed our house. We lived in a trailer park. And our house, I have some images and memories of it. I was only three, but I remember um, the sound of the wind and the crumpling sound of my mom's car <clears throat> getting pushed into the front door so we couldn't get out of the house that way. I mean, the house was on the move. We needed to get out of it. So, um, and the other door wouldn't open. Like, I remember this struggle, like, how are we going to get out of the house? Um, and I think that was one of my first big traumas that happened in my life. And then um, moving forward, always never feeling quite like I fit in, like I wasn't like other people. Um, just because of my level of intuition and um, sensitivity It was difficult for me to be around other people. And when I was in high school, 
um, well, no, I was in the eighth grade. My dad remarried and I had never, I hadn't lived with my dad since I was three. And I really wanted to go live with my dad. At that point, I was having a really difficult relationship with my mom. Um, she has a lot of trauma and it was great when I was little and we were best friends and really enmeshed. And I feel like I, uh, did a lot of work for her emotionally. Like I helped her stay regulated, um, and kind of parented her so that I would be safe. Um, and as I started becoming a teenager, I was doing what teenagers are supposed to do and individuating and becoming myself. Um, and my mom saw that as a huge betrayal. And so there was a lot of fighting and crying and manipulation that would go on. And I just needed out. Like I couldn't really survive in that environment. So I went to live with my dad and his new family, um, a stepsister, a stepbrother, stepmom, um, and they lived on property. So I got to have a horse and a few other animals. Um, and they became my best friends, the animals. Um, they only stayed married for about two years. I learned of the divorce coming home one day with all my stuff packed and my horse being sold. So that was fucking traumatic. Um, my dad slipped back into alcoholism again and was working mostly out of town. I was sent to live with family friends. Um, and I had a pretty strong psychic ability too when I was growing up. So I would have visions of things that would happen in the future. And they were spot on. Like I would, it would be like a movie would come on and I would see something happen and then it would happen. Um, Could you give me one example of this that is something that you would be willing to mm -hmm. share? Yeah. I'll share this one that is coming up. Um, so I, it was the summer and it's, of course it's hurricane related, this, um, insight that I'm getting, but I had been watching the news and a hurricane was being predicted to, um, hit the Texas coast, um, south of Galveston, like, uh, I can't remember the city. But um, they kept saying that it was going to happen there. And then they even started doing an evacuation because it was a really big storm. And I knew in my being, like, I could see a map of where the tornado, I mean, where the hurricane was actually going. And it wasn't where they were predicting. And that um, I saw people dying because they weren't able to get out. And so the woman... The family friend, like this was a woman that my parents had known since high school. Um, I lived in a small town called Splendora, Splendora, Texas. Um, and very Christian community, very, she was very religious, had a prayer group of women that would come over. Um, 
they would take turns whose houses the prayer group would meet at, but about once a month it was at her house. Um, anyway, so I told her, well, first I called my mom and I'm like, mom, I'm having this image that this hurricane is going to kill a bunch of people because it's going to make landfall in a different place than they're predicting. And she's like, okay, well, what do you want to do about it? And I'm like, I don't know what I can do. And I, I was like 13 or 14. And so I decided that I wanted to call the news um, and tell them. And yeah, the, the laugh. And so um, I needed to know where the phone book was. because yeah, I'm laughing was, because it's super interesting. Yeah. Um, Pre-internet, so I needed a yeah. phone book. Um, it was a party line in the small little town that I lived in, so whoever wants to be listening to this phone call can listen. And then I also had to ask permission to use the phone because we had very strict times that we could use the phone. And so... Um, First, I asked for the phone book, and it was just the county that we were in, and Houston was in a different county, so I needed the Houston phone book. Um, and she keeps asking me why I want the phone book, and I'm like, I want to call the news because, and I tell her that I'm getting this sense that the tornado, the hurricane is going to go somewhere else and people are going to die because they don't have time to get out and da 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 and she was so freaked out by me sharing this um, that uh, before I knew it, the prayer group was there and I, there was an exorcism being performed because I had to be possessed by the devil if I'm having visions of things I have no control of. Um, since then, my psychic ability has been turned way down. Um, well, for a long time, it was turned way down. And what was it that they actually did? Um, well, there were three of them because in the Bible it says, "Where three or more are present, I am there also." Something like that. I think it's two or more. Two or more. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I haven't read the Bible. So two or more are present. I am also, I thought it was three. Anyway, she called two of her prayer ladies and they started praying over me and laying hands and speaking in tongues. And when it was over, I called my mom and I called my dad. My dad came and got me and he was working out of town and deep in his alcoholism at the time. So he just started renting a house for me to live in. Um, I was 14 or 15 then. Um, gave me a car. I didn't have a driver's license, but I drove myself to school. Just started sending me money to pay all the bills. Um, as soon as I could find a job, I got a job. But I basically lived by myself. What happened to the hurricane? S starting at that age. Exactly what I saw. It went... It made landfall in a different place. No one had evacuated. Um, Ten people died. And I kept seeing the number 10 in my vision over and over again in caskets. So 
the, the vision that happened before the light bulb. Yeah, the vision that I wanted the phone book for yeah. happened. Yeah. Um, the map that I'd seen, that's where the hurricane made landfall and 10 people died um, because they weren't told. I mean, no one evacuated from that area. Um, and then I made some new friends at school. By then, I was in high school, and at that point, um, I I was 15 or 16. Um, one weekend, I smoked pot with a friend and didn't really feel it, so the next weekend, we smoked a whole bunch of pot. I got really, really high. I loved it. Um, the next weekend, I did LSD. Um, I started doing Robitussin, which is dextromorphine. 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 It is related to morphine molecularly, I think. And it's also very similar to ketamine, the experience, right? Just longer and, yeah. Yeah. It's it's different pharmacologically, but yeah. Um, And then I found MDMA, or ecstasy, and... I did a lot of ecstasy back in the day. Um, Can we see the holes in your brain? (laughs) No holes. I also um, discovered mushrooms around that same time, and I lived in a small town. There were many cows. I found this really great place to go and pick mushrooms. Oh, you picked your own mushrooms. Mm. I would pick mushrooms oh by the garbage bags and share them with friends. Yeah, just like gold level unlocked. Mm. <laughs> you can pick your own mushrooms. East Texas. Huh? Yeah. And then um, when I was in my early 20s, I think 23, I moved to Austin. Um with my boyfriend at the time who had been accepted to a program at UT. Um, And at that point, I had pretty much stopped recreational use of those substances. And um, when I was 26, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which is... um, the particular version that I've been diagnosed with is known as aggressive-progressive. Um, most people end up having a remission or um, the disease really slows down. Um, in 23 years, my disease hasn't gone into remission and I've had multiple joint replacements. I wear leg braces. Um, but that started when I was 26. And I did have the idea several times that I should do mushrooms, but I didn't really pursue it. And I was afraid of doing it because of my health. But knowing what I know now, my inner healer knew that that would probably be very helpful for me. For your, actually your... For my disease. The actual physiological disease or how you were relating to it? Both. Mm. Okay. Um, so I spent about 10 years, I like to call it my sleeping beauty phase, because my uh, before I got sick, 
I was studying medicinal plants, um, like herbs, and using them medicinally. And I had this firm belief that my body could heal itself, but medicine would inhibit its ability. So I didn't participate in Western medicine for the first seven years of my illness, which is when the most damage typically happens is in the beginning. Um, so at seven, at the seven year mark is when I went to the doctor again. And by then I had such severe joint damage that I needed joint replacements. And since then I've blended um, traditional medicine with alternative Eastern type medicines, which has been really helpful. Um, I too, in my early twenties, and then once I got through that first seven years of really, really sick, spent a lot of time in school, not knowing what the fuck I wanted to do. Like so many different majors, um, art history, massage. I thought I wanted to be a midwife for a while. Um, herbal therapist, naturopath, like all these things. Um, therapist, maybe, um, definitely a helper healer type person. Um, I really wanted to help people. Uh, I also had been a performance artist before I had gotten sick. Um, did a lot of performance art with this group in town and we were on tour actually when I got sick. Um, then speeding forward, uh, about 10 years post surgery, I was, um, in school studying social work, becoming completely obsessed about how trauma changes the brain and the HPA axis and how that impacts our entire nervous system and our um, physical health. I started being interested in epigenetics. Meanwhile, one of my good friends um, was working with a guy doing psychedelic work in New York and had attended the Horizons conference in New York and was just blown away with a lot of the research. And she felt like with the work that I wanted to do, and my physical stuff that I really needed to revisit um, psychedelics. And actually the last time I had used psychedelics re recreationally was she and I were in a band together and we were performing at a wedding and someone gave us LSD. Um, so it was interesting that she's like bringing me back into the fold. So she convinced me to go to Psychedelic Science 2017 to be where all the research on psychedelics was being presented. And I left that conference with some LSD to start microdosing, doing the Fatiman pro protocol. Um, and I knew that I needed to do ayahuasca. It was very clear to me. Um, so I had done a holotropic work, breathwork workshop with Stan Groff there at the conference and I knew that if I could find a holotropic breathwork community 
all the doors would start opening. So I went to a weekend workshop doing holotropic breath work. I met an interesting character there. When he found out that I'd been at the psychedelic science, he asked me if there was anything that I wanted. I had no idea what he was offering me. And finally, just being coy, I said, yeah, I want a medical doctor and a chemist to lead me through an ayahuasca ceremony. He swallowed hard, blinked, and said, really? And I was like, yeah, give me that. And he was like, okay, let me see what I can do. He came back a few minutes later and said, Tuesday afternoon, your phone's going to ring. Answer. It'll be an unblocked call. And I got a call from a medical doctor and a chemist who led me through an ayahuasca ceremony. Or led me through ayahuasca. Um, I did ayahuasca the first day, it was a weekend retreat, and the second day I did 2CB. 2CE, right? 2CE, sorry. 2CE. Um, leading up to that weekend, I had to get off my medications, and I had been using opiate pain medications for 15 years. And I worked with my pain management doctor to titrate off. I had to be off for three days before going into the weekend and it was really difficult. Um, I was in physical and emotional pain um, from withdrawing from opiates and not something I ever wanted to do again. Um, and since that weekend, it's been it was in August of 2017 and now we're December 2019. I haven't taken an opiate. I haven't taken, only a handful of times have I even taken a Tylenol for pain because my experience on psychedelics taught me, well, first of all, I feel like it really detoxified my body. Um, being on ayahuasca really cleaned out my system. And then 2CE taught me a different relationship with my pain and I knew that I could never do just traditional talk therapy. I needed to find a way to incorporate psychedelics, but I needed to be able to do it legally in my work. And then um, I was at a MAPS benefit dinner where you were also. Um, we didn't really know each other yet. Um, we had just met in passing. Yeah. So the one at Aubrey Marx's house. Were you at that one? So we were at a MAPS benefit dinner. Um, there was a woman that I had worked with while I was getting my licensure at an outpatient hospital. Um, she recognized me and was married to a psychiatrist who was there interested in learning more about doing ketamine. And then that led to me working in the clinic. Um, and then that led to us being invited to do the MDMA training, and here I am. Well, that's, a, <laughs> that's quite a story. So, uh, uh, I'm kind of curious about, so how does the pain management happen still ongoing if you're not taking, you said that partly it was the ayahuasca that detoxified you? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But what else do you think is helping you 
too. Well, I mean, I think the ayahuasca detoxified and then opened a lot of gates mm-hmm. in my physicality and in my psyche. Um, and then in my 2CE experience, I, I mean, looking back on it, I was interacting with my pain, like that part of myself in that medicine journey and understanding its origins and it's, it was an epigenetic origin. Um, understanding that all of my experiences matter, the pain, the trauma, all of it is important um, and can be communicated without a pain signal. I don't have to resist the pain. I can just be with the pain. Pain Mm -hmm. is pain. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, if I tap into my body right now, I have pain but it's not in the forefront of my experience anymore. It is kind of like breathing. Yeah. I notice it when I know when I consciously yeah. go there. Yeah. Um, and through my work since then with my teachers and then, um, on my own and with Jordan, Um, my health is actually improving. Like my rheumatologist is confused because people don't get better. People don't improve with my diagnosis. It's just a slow decline until, you know, it starts impacting your major organs. Um, my numbers are better. My inflammatory markers are better. Um, my body is stronger. I'm a completely different person than I was two years ago so psychedelics have helped me heal physically but also emotionally and so it is my mission to share that work with other people and I actually feel like it's what I was born to do this work Mm -hmm. Thanks for hanging out with us in the Room of Lives. In the final part of our conversation, we will discuss harm reduction, the war on drugs, yoga and psychedelics, transpersonal experiences, and religion.